So you heard the common theme that ran through most of what we sang tonight was about the king. And as we look at the scarlet thread, we've been looking at the Davidic line over the past few weeks. And you know, a couple of texts that are rarely preached from are Matthew 1, the first part, and Luke 3, the latter part. What's at the beginning of Matthew 1 and the latter part of Luke 3? The genealogies. We say genealogies, but I guess it's got an A in there. That's an odd-sounding A, but... How many of y'all have ever heard a sermon on nothing but the genealogies? One, okay. Two. What's that? There you go. (laughs) Yeah. You're children of the king. That means that you have royal blood running through your veins. Amen? Spiritual blood. But some in our congregation actually do have royal blood running through them. Y'all know I like to do genealogies, and I do them usually uh, before funerals. If you were at Flora LeFevre's funeral, you may or may not remember, uh, she was a descendant of King Robert II and King Robert III of Scotland, 14th century. That's impressive. Um, That has nothing in comparison to Patsy Fox. Uh, A couple of you were at Patsy's uh, memorial service. It was up at uh, Off White Settlement Road at uh, Greenwood. She was descended from no less than 13 kings in Europe from the 13th, 12th, and 13th centuries. England, France, Hungary, Castile, Aragon, Naples. Hmm. So it got me to thinking. I did a little bit of work on our genealogy. And Beverly's parents, her dad, is a descendant of, you ever heard of a guy by the name of Robert the Bruce? Braveheart. King of where? Scotland. Well, she's not a descendant of him. Okay. She's a descendant of his brother, Edward Bruce. And what a lot of folks don't know is that for a brief period of time in the early 14th century, he was king of Ireland. Hmm. 13, 14 to 15 or something like that. And if my mother's watching tonight, I think I've told her this before, but her dad, uh, he was a McGraw. That's her maiden name. He was a descendant of Alfred the Great, Malcolm I of Scotland, and goes back about 32 generations to a fellow by the name of Harold, and not Harold Godwinson of England, but Harold the Viking King, Harold the Bluetooth. That's pretty descriptive, isn't it? That goes back a long way, 30-something generations. You know, when you look at Matthew, there are 42 generations that are listed there, and what a lot of scholars think is that some of those names probably include more than one generation in them, okay? But if you look at Joseph's genealogy, Jesus is descended from David through which son? Hmm. David had a number of sons. And he had four by Bathsheba. The first one died, yes, exactly right, Olga. Solomon. The first one died, and then Solomon was actually the second son. Well, this was the fourth son. It was... um, his descendants, he came out. And, and, you know, it was probably more than 28 generations. Because when you look at Luke's genealogy, there, there are more names, and it's much more condensed. A lot of scholars think that maybe this, in fact, is Mary's genealogy. That it right there, when it starts at Joseph, then it, it skips over, and it's actually Mary's father that is listed. And whether or not that's the case... It takes us back then 42 generations to David. And um, that genealogy for her goes through Nathan, and that's the fourth son of David. So uh, this has to do with 
Yeah, a spiritual genealogy tonight and connecting the thread of royalty from David, obviously to whom? To Jesus. And that's where the scarlet thread runs. So the story tonight is from Isaiah the ninth chapter and Isaiah the 11th chapter. A little bit of background. David ruled for 40 years, three, uh, seven years in Hebron over just Judah, and then another 33 years over the uh, combined kingdom. We know that. And best of my understanding, uh, calculations, he, he probably uh, died somewhere around maybe 971. And then Solomon ruled for 40 years, down to 931. We don't know exactly when the eternal covenant was, but my estimation, given those dates, would be sometime, it's right after the United Kingdom, right after he has moved the ark to Jerusalem. So probably somewhere around 1,000, more precisely, maybe around 1,004. We, we don't know exactly. And then we know that the kingdom was divided after Solomon, Solomon's son, Rehoboam, who was, yeah, he was a micromanager, and he was a very unpleasant king for whom to serve, and he also turned to idolatry. So he was one of the bad kings of Judah. And then in Israel, Jeroboam. And we know what happened after that. All of the 19 rulers that came, including Jeroboam and after that, were what we would call bad kings because they worshipped idols. And of course, that's why they were eventually taken into, they were scattered by the Assyrians. So we come down to this story in Isaiah the ninth chapter, and in the seventh chapter just before it, we know that Ahaz was king of Judah in the days of Ahaz. He was the son of Jotham and the father of Hezekiah. He was one of the bad kings. What's happened in Israel, in the north? Uh, Hoshea is the king. He's the client king for Assyria at this time. And we know this, that uh, Assyria has begun to invade Syria. Tiglath-Pileser, how's that for a name? Tiglath-Pileser, not only the first, not the second, but there were three of them. This was the third one. And he invaded Syria and then came down into um, northern Israel. What we find in Judah, of course, was a, a different pattern. Uh, they had good kings and bad kings. So they had a total during this time, this interval of about 270 years from the eternal covenant down to today's date, roughly about 270 years. They had five bad kings and a bad queen, Athaliah, and they had six good kings. And there's this pattern. It's almost like a sine curve. Well, it, it's not an even sign curve. There was a short period, there was a short period of bad rule, and then a fairly long period of good rule, and then a short period of bad rule, and then a long period of good rule. Two bad kings for 20 years. Two good kings for 63 years, Asa and Jehoshaphat. Then three bad kings for just 13 years, ending with the evil rule of Athaliah. And then we have Joash, Amaziah, Uzziah, and Jotham were good kings for about 104 years. And this brings us then down to the time of Ahaz. He has just become king. He was co-regent with his father, Jotham. And he ruled about 20 years, but this is near the beginning of his reign, probably about the time that Jotham has died. And of course we know that his son was the good king, Hezekiah. What's happened? Assyria has invaded. They want to have domination of all the Middle East down to Egypt, and they have attacked Babylonia. Now they are moving to the west into what we call the Levant, into Lebanon and Syria and into Israel. And the Syrians have formed an alliance with Samaria, and that's another way of saying northern Israel. And the king, Pekah, was the king, the next to the last of those bad kings. And also along with Tyre, the Phoenicians on the coast. And what do they do? They want to get Judah to come in with them, and Judah will not. Ahaz is a king, and he refuses then to join forces because he sees that Assyria has overwhelming power and might. And so Isaiah advises Ahaz not to go to Assyria for help, but also not to join the alliance. And so the siege of Jerusalem ends. They withdraw. Assyria attacks the northern part of uh, Israel. And uh, he eventually, the uh, Pekah was assassinated by one of his captains. Captains in, in his army by the name of Hoshea. He made himself king. Tiglath-Pileser then accepts tribute from him. 
And he ruled from about 732 to then the demise of the kingdom because when Tiglath-Pileser died in 722, uh, what did Hoshea try to do? He tried to throw off the yoke of Assyrian control. And when he did that then, the new ruler, Shalmaneser, then defeated Israel, finally scattered the rest of the people, and they never recollected until the time of uh, the Hasmoneans. So that was the situation when we come down to Isaiah the ninth chapter. Except for Judah. What happened to Judah? They then went to Assyria for help. And Assyria, the king, demanded that they pay heavy, heavy tribute. But the good thing about it was, even though he, dis, he did not listen to Isaiah, it did buy some time for Judah. The Assyrian kingdom fell about 120 years later in 609. And the Babylonians then, of course, came in, and we know what happened as a result of that. But for about 100 years, Judah has relative prosperity under the yoke and the domination of Assyria paying heavy, heavy tribute. And we know that there was political corruption and oppression in Judah during most of this time. This is why the prophets spoke against the kings and the priests as being bad shepherds. And then after Hezekiah's rule, which was a good rule, of course Manasseh, one of the most evil kings in history of Judah or Israel, became king. And we think that Isaiah may have lived into that, into that period. What did God do with the Assyrians? Well, he, he fulfilled his promise that we're going to talk about tonight, and he finally defeated the Assyrians under Sennacherib in 701 and drove them out. So that's the historical background for tonight's story. What about the scriptural background? When you look at Isaiah, uh, Isaiah himself uh, prophesied for about 50 years plus. Four kings at the beginning of the book, you know, he lists them. Uzziah, his son Jotham, his son then Ahaz, the bad king, and then Hezekiah. Probably lived into the reign of Manasseh, we think, even though he didn't prophesy during that time. And during Hezekiah's reign, there was reform. They got rid of the idols. But there was a constant threat by the Assyrians, and God finally defeated them in 701 B.C. What about the background for the Scripture text? Well, the first five chapters of Isaiah, he then, after he is introduced, he pronounces oracles, and in those oracles there is judgment that is pronounced against Judah for its corruption. Whether this came during the time of Ahaz or later, probably, probably later, maybe uh, in the latter part of Ahaz's reign. And he promises to, to restore Israel at the end of those five chapters. Chapter 6. We all know what chapter 6 is about. In the year that King Uzziah died, Isaiah saw what? The Lord in the temple, high and lifted up. So we have Isaiah's vision of the Lord, and we have his commissioning in chapter 6. Chapter 7, then, we go to the historical part. This is where we know that Ahaz was ruling because Isaiah tells us. And we can pin pinpoint the date. Um, Tiglath-Pileser invaded about 734. This is a period 734 to 732. It's when he then defeats Syria, wipes out Damascus in 732, conquers the northern part of Israel, the region of Naphtali and Zebulun in northern Israel. And this begins in chapter 7. Prophecy that uh, in chapter 7, after the siege of Jerusalem is mentioned, then we have that great text about a child will be born who is born of a virgin, 714. We look at it every Christmas. And his name will be what? Emmanuel, God with us. And then at the end of that chapter, there is another word of judgment against Judah. In chapter 8, leading up to chapter 9, uh, the hardships of both kingdoms are prophesied. Not just Judah, but Israel. And we know what's about to happen to Israel within the next 10 years. They're going to be obliterated. But there's going to be a believing remnant that will return. Then we come to chapter 9. Chapter 9 is the promise of a prince of peace to come. And at the end of that chapter, once again, judgment is pronounced against Judah. We're going to go to chapter 11. So what happens in chapter 10? 
it is very clear, God makes it very clear through Isaiah, that who is the instrument of his judgment against Israel and, to some degree, Judah? It's Assyria. God is using Assyria to punish Israel and to bring Judah back into line. But God promises that someday Assyria will be vanquished. And we know that in 609 that happened. Babylon, Babylonian Empire defeated the Assyrians. And at the end of chapter 10, this is important, there is a renewed statement about the coming of the remnant. The remnant will be restored. Uh, the name of uh, Isaiah's older son is Shear Jeshub. And it's mentioned in chapter 7. But in chapter 10, again, just before the 11th chapter we're going to talk about tonight, in that chapter, in verse 21, it mentions that the remnant will return. And that, in fact, is his son's name. So we know three times so far, up to this point in Isaiah, it has been mentioned, not only is Judah going to suffer judgment, but there will be a remnant. And that's important to tonight's story. And then finally, in chapter 11, we have the prophecy that there is going to be one of the line of David that is going to emerge as a ruler. It pretty much defines who that is from chapter 9. He's going to be the shoot and the branch of Jesse. And he's also going to be the root of Jesse. And that's kind of a conundrum. How can you both be the shoot and the branch and the root? We'll talk about that in a moment. And then finally, a fourth time, there will be a remnant that will be restored. And that remnant will be a banner, a standard, a battle standard for all of God's people to rally around. So Isaiah, when we look at Isaiah's message, we brought this out when we preached through the Bible, but let me mention again, Isaiah is the evangelist of the Old Testament, really. He, he, he prophesied not just to Judah, not just to Israel, but to all the nations. So when you come to chapters 13 through 23, there are oracles, not just against Judah and Israel, but also the ten nations that are surrounding them. God is intent on reaching those nations as well. He is intent on using Israel, Judah, as his people to do what? To draw those nations to him. He pronounces judgment not just on Judah and Israel to bring them back into line, but his purpose of pronouncing judgment on these other nations is not just to punish them for their evil, but is to call them to what? To repent. Most of those oracles occurred in the year that Ahaz died in 715 B.C. And we find that constantly, as I said, Isaiah talks about the return of the remnant that is going to come back. God's kingdom. You know, this is about the king, but what about God's kingdom? Isaiah makes it very clear that no human kingdom in all of history is perfect. They all fail. Israel's history has proved this. The, the judges were not capable of sustaining the nation. The kings weren't. And in fact, though he sent prophets to correct the situation, nor were the prophets. They were all inadequate. God's kingdom will be his sovereign rule. God's kingdom will be the true government. God's kingdom, not a human monarchy, not an oligarchy, not even a democracy, not even a republic, not even a socialistic republic is the answer. This is one of the key messages that comes through all of Isaiah. And it will be established by God himself and only he can do it. And so in these two passages tonight, we see him bringing this out in the message of the Prince of Peace in Isaiah 9 and the Righteous Kingdom in Isaiah 11. So when we look at Isaiah 9, if you would turn there with me, we'll look at the first seven verses. When you look at this passage, there are three main points that he brings out. First of all, they're going to go from darkness to light. Secondly, they're going to go from oppression to joy and prosperity. And finally, he is going to move them from chaos, which they have experienced in the Assyrian invasion, to his godly dominion. So you look at the first verse from darkness to light. But there will be no more gloom for her who was in anguish. In early times, he threatened the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali with contempt. But later on, he made it glorious by the way of the sea on the other side of the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. That passage ought to sound familiar if you remember about the beginning of Jesus's ministry, because it's quoted then by Matthew. There are three descriptions here. If you look at the end of chapter 8, it ends with, in the wake of the Assyrian invasion, 
gloom, distress, darkness, and anguish. And how does chapter 9 open? It opens with what? There will be no more gloom. There is going to be light. The gloom is going to be dispelled. So in what setting? He talks about the land of Zebulun and Naphtali. This was west and southwest of Galilee. It was the northern part of the northern kingdom of Israel. And it was the hardest hit region in the first wave of Assyrian invasion in 734, 733. Most of the people were deported. The land was a wasteland. And guess where, Naf guess where Nazareth is? Nazareth is in the territory that used to be the tribal possession of Zebulun. So that's where Jesus grew up. So that's the reference here to the one that's going to come to that region. The way of the sea. When the Assyrians established their government, they, they divided this portion of Israel into three parts, and Syria into three parts. There was Duru, there was Galatsu, and there was Magadu. Duru is the Assyrian name for the way by the sea. You see, for them to go from Assyria to the Mediterranean, this was the way by the sea. And it was Galilee of the Gentiles. Magadu later becomes Megiddo, and it actually means Galilee of the nations. So this describes this region in northern Israel that we would speak of as being northern Galilee, which was decimated in the wake of the Assyrian invasion. So there's been gloom there, but what's going to happen? Light is going to come. Light dispels the darkness in verse number two. The people who walk in darkness will see a great light, and those who live in a dark land, the light will shine on them. The phrase in Hebrew, when it talks about a dark land, is literally the land of the shadow of death. So when you read the King James Version of Jesus' inauguration of his ministry, it talks about a light has come to the land of the shadow of death. What does that sound like? Psalm 23. Think about this, folks. The stench of death and the decimation and the destruction of Zebulun and Naphtali in that day. Think about being in the valley of the shadow of death. Have you ever been in the valley of the shadow of death? I have. In 1991, when we went into Kuwait, after the American army, the 7th Corps, had hit that center sector, and the... Uh, troops, Saddam Hussein's troops, had retreated out of Kuwait. There was a very narrow kind of valley that they had to go through, and one road out of there. And the Americans caught them in an ambush. It was massive slaughter. It was war. I went in there about a month later, and they had covered up. They, they didn't even bury the, the men. They didn't even bury the tanks that were destroyed. They didn't bury the armored personnel carriers. They just moved in with bulldozers and covered it all with dirt. Now, I don't want to be too graphic, but it will be. Even then, when we drove through that valley, you could still see an arm or two sticking out of the, the dirt. And let me tell you, if you've ever smelled death, there is a stench about it, and it's unmistakable. That is what he's talking about here. He's talking about that kind of destruction that had hit Zebulun and Naphtali. That kind of destruction that left a wake of death and a stench. The valley of the shadow of death. And what is going to happen? A light is going to come upon this land. And the people then are going to be lifted out of their gloom. Isaiah's light is later personified. He makes it very specific who this light is going to be. Because in 42, chapter 42, where we talk about the suffering servant... One of those servant passages, Isaiah clearly identifies this light bringer as the suffering servant. And we know who that was. Isaiah 42, 6. And I will appoint you as a covenant to the people and as a light to the nations. So this light then dispels the darkness. Then we go from oppression to joy and prosperity in verses 3 through 5. Read with me. You shall multiply the nation. You shall increase their gladness. They will be glad in your presence and with the gladness of harvest as men rejoice when they divide the spoil. For you shall break the yoke of their burden and the staff on their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor, as at the battle of Midian. For every boot of the booted warrior in the battle tumult and cloak rolled in blood will be for burning. 
fuel for the fire. It is no longer going to be a small nation. It's no longer going to be little Naphtali and Zebulun. It's no longer going to be little Israel. It's no longer going to be just little Judah and Israel even combined together. Someday God is going to expand his kingdom to a multiplicity. This fulfills the promise to Abraham. I'm going to multiply your nation. It will grow and there's going to be gladness. There's going to be gladness in the harvest. You see, they did not stop harvesting then after the Assyrian invasion. Then, you know, in the next spring they, they planted and then they reaped in the fall, but they did not reap with gladness. They did not reap with gladness. Why? Because they had to pay even then a very heavy tribute to Assyria. What he's saying is here, you're going to reap and the full yield of your harvest is going to be yours to keep. There's going to be joy of the spoil. No longer are you going to be plundered. You are going to enjoy the plunder of war. You're going to reap the bounty. But it's not going to be bloodshed. You're going to reap the dividend of peace. They go from subjugation to freedom and peace in verses 4 and 5. You take a look at that. All suffering is going to end. The Assyrian oppression has stopped. The yoke of oppression, the burden that they carry of the tribute, which was fairly passive based on their labor, and the affliction that is, that is uh, uh, placed upon them through the rod, they're not going to suffer that anymore. What he's saying is all suffering will cease. And this will come because of the anointed one. Later we know that Isaiah prophesies about this anointed one that comes to do what? To relieve that oppression, to take that yoke from upon them. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, Isaiah 61.1. Because the Lord has anointed me to do what? To bring good news to the afflicted. Isaiah is saying this at about this time. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and freedom to the prisoners. As at the battle of Midian, what does that refer to? Who fought the battle against the Midianites? It was Gideon. Well, no, it wasn't really so much Gideon. It was who? It was God. <laughs> the miraculous delivery. You remember the story. He had 30-something thousand troops, and he pared it down and pared it down and pared it down to what? 300. And what did God do? He used those 300 to defeat how many Midianites? 135,000 of them. That was God who did that. Later, when we see that God finally relieves Judah of this oppression by the Assyrians under Sennacherib's army, it is God who destroys the Assyrians. It's God then that decimates an army of 185,000 in 701 B.C. You see, God is going to deliver them from the oppression. And the devices of war will cease. This was already promised in Isaiah 2. You look back at Isaiah 2.4, the promise had already been given. They will do what with their swords? They will hammer, hammer them into what? Plows. All the instruments of war eventually will be destroyed. Their spears will be turned into pruning hooks. And this is because of what is about to happen in a moment. The prince of peace is going to come in the next passage. Look at verses 6 through 7. It goes from worldly chaos to godly dominion. A small little kingdom to a great godly empire. From chaos to dominion. Verse 6, for a child is born to us and a son is given to us and the government will rest upon his shoulders and his name will be called what? Wonderful Counselor and what? Mighty God and what? Eternal Father and what? Prince of Peace. There will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. They're going to go from worldly chaos then to godly dominion. God's government. This word government is used twice in the Old Testament, and they're both in this passage. The word mishra. What does it mean? It doesn't mean the kind of government we're talking about. It doesn't mean administrative government. It means dominion. It means absolute authority and control over all of creation. This is going to be someday the theocracy that is renewed. It is going to be as Adam and Eve lived in the garden under God's administration, under the authority of God's own son by his chosen ruler. That probably has a dual identity here. I don't disagree with the scholars that say that Isaiah was also prophesying that there was going to come a deliverer in their own day and time that would help to deliver Israel. Because about three years before this, who has been born? Hezekiah has been born. 
And this is kind of a prophetic perfect tense here. Some, I think, NASB, and you notice I didn't use the NASB verb there. I didn't say that a son will be given. I said it is given. It's a prophetic perfect. Probably Hezekiah already had been born, Ahaz's son. And there's no question. He is a deliverer. He stopped the idolatry. He reformed the religion. He brought the people back to Yahweh. They experienced prosperity in his day, and they eventually had freedom from the Assyrian yoke of oppression. So, yeah, human deliverer. But we know that Isaiah is pointing beyond that. He's talking about the divine ruler of God's permanent kingdom. And we know that because of the language that is used here. This is the human divine being, the human being, a child. A human child is given to us, but he is also what? The son that is given to us. And that, of course, is an allusion to the son of God. This was already predicted in chapter 4. God with us is coming. And now, now we see this God with us who is coming, this Emmanuel, is described in these four phrases as the son who has been enthroned. You know, in this day and time, uh, Egypt and other kingdoms had enthronement rituals where they would pronounce certain titles upon the, uh, the incoming pharaoh or incoming king. In Egypt, they had five titles. Here we have four. Wonderful counselor is his qualification to rule. Mighty God is his person and power to rule. Eternal Father is the relationship that he has with his what? With his subjects. Prince of Peace is the kind of society that he is going to govern. What wonderful counselor. This has to do with uh, the ruler's ability to make good plans and to make perfect strategies, to plan out his kingdom. Wonderful. Some versions say marvelous counselor. It's the closest word in the Hebrew for the word that we would call supernatural. He has a supernatural insight in the plans that he has for his people. And in Isaiah 25, we see this clearly paralleled. O Lord, you are my God. I will exalt you. I will give thanks to your name, for you have worked wonders. You see, this word here, wonders, is the same word that is used. Marvelous plans formed long ago with perfect faithfulness. God's plans for Judah were not born in 732. He knew when he established the Davidic covenant. He knew when he then had David anointed. He knew this day was going to come. You see, his plans and his strategies are perfect. Wonderful counselor. Mighty God, El Gibor. That word El, you know, is the word for the mighty God, the warrior God. It is the El that is in Emmanuel. In 714, it's used three times in Isaiah. This is the supreme warrior God. What Isaiah is saying here is, he's not just going to be a godlike warrior. That was David. Not just a godlike warrior. He is going to be a warlike God. Supreme God. Who will vindicate justice. And who will destroy evil. And in 1021... In the chapter just bef between this and the next one, we see that it is this mighty God that is described here, this El Gabor to whom the remnant will return. Eternal Father literally means, the Abiad means that he is the father of eternity. Now that speaks to his eternal nature, of course. He's eternal father in the sense that he there never was when he was not. We know that. But it also speaks to the origination of the universe. He is the father of eternity. He is the one that has given birth to the universe. He is the originator of the universe. You know, fathers use very rarely of God in the Old Testament, about 13 times. But eight of those references, we know it by implication. We know it as an illusion. In other words, it speaks about God, but it says we are his sons. We are his children. So we think of him as father. But there are only five times that, the, that father is used of God in the Old Testament beyond this. So it's pretty rare usage, which draws our attention to it in this passage. He is the eternal father who never had a beginning and who originated everything that we see and that we don't see. And the prince of peace, the Sar Shalom. What does Shalom mean? Shalom is the noun. It means wholeness. It doesn't mean just the absence of hostility. Jeru Salem. Salem is the verb. It means to make whole. 
It, it goes beyond the absence of hostility. Here he's talking about a public order that is founded on justice and righteousness. And we see this explained later in, in chapter 32. And the righteous peace that we're going to talk about in just a moment, chapter 11. Prince of Peace. And then finally we see in this passage, unlimited dominion. It's unlimited in space and time and character. Look at the wording. In space, it, it will increase without end expansion. Without time limits, from now and forevermore. And its character is unending. It is peace without end. You see, this is what the people were really yearning for when they asked for a king. When they asked for a king, God said, you don't want a king. This is what they really wanted. They were tired of the judges, one after the other after the other. They were tired of this cycle of prosperity and then idolatry, prosperity and idolatry. They wanted stability. They wanted somebody that could secure that for them. They thought it would be a, an earthly king, and it didn't happen. Now God is going to fulfill what he, had attempt, what, what he did through the Davidic covenant, and that is to give them permanent rule and permanent peace through the fulfillment of that eternal covenant that he gave to David. He is going to send a righteous ruler and a righteous kingdom. So we go where now? To chapter 11. Chapter 11, beginning in verse 1. This is a righteous kingdom that is a result of it. God is going to fulfill the desires of the people by stabilizing this in an eternal dom dominion of righteousness and justice. We have the coming ruler in verses 1 and 2. Then a shoot will spring from the stem of Jesse, and a branch from his roots will bear fruit. The Spirit of the Lord will rest on him in the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and strength, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. The shoot is the new growth. The branch is the tender young sapling. What this is saying is he's going to come out of the tree. Which tree is he coming out of? Jesse's tree. He is going to come out of the remnant of Jesse's tribe out of Judah. We know this from chapter 4. Because there's another word that's used that's similar to branch, but it's not the same word for branch that's used here. But it says that branch that is alluded to here, that branch in chapter 4 is going to come out of the remnant. So it's very clear. It's coming out of the tribe of Judah. It's going to be Jesse's family tree, and it is going to be a surviving remnant. What is the significance of this? God is always faithful to his promise. When he promised David that he would have a, an eternal throne, that a descendant would always sit on the throne, he is fulfilling that promise through his eternal covenant. And it's only God's power that it can accomplish this. You stop and think about it. Hope is almost gone. <laughs> Especially after 722 when Israel, the northern ten tribes, are obliterated. And then later in 587, which basically Isaiah is prophesying about when he pronounces judgment upon, upon Judah. It seems as though hope would be gone. There's nothing left of the tree. There's just a what? A cut down tree with a what? What's left? When you cut a tree down before you dig up the roots, what's left? A stump. But what has God said about that? There is going to come a shoot out of that tree, a tender shoot in chapter 6, verse 13, in fact, he has said this. It is though you're looking at the stump of a felled tree, and yet in the stump of that felled tree there is a seed. And now we see the seed then sprouting. There's a comparison here. At the end of chapter 10, it talks about the advancement of the, the there are metaphors that are used for the advancement of the Assyrian troops as they move toward Jerusalem, to lay siege to Jerusalem, which was not successful. And it talks about then God cutting down the trees. This stump that had no life, this tender young shoot, this branch that comes out of Jesse is going to be stronger than the mighty oaks that God has cut down, than the Assyrian trees. Jeremiah later explains this in Jeremiah 23. When he speaks about the righteous branch, He's the prince of peace, but Jeremiah describes him as the king who will reign and who will act wisely. And in Jeremiah, Jeremiah makes it clear that this king is not only going to be king of Judah, he is going to then be the united king of both Judah and Israel together. And then we see in this passage that he is anointed and equipped. How is he anointed and equipped? By the Spirit. You know, this word that the Spirit of the Lord was upon is used pretty rarely, too. It's only used about, I think, uh, nine times in the Old Testament. Four of them were judges. 
Othniel, the first of the judges against the Mesopotamians. Gideon, the spirit of the Lord came against him and when he fought the Midianites. Jephthah, when he fought against the Ammonites. And Samson, when he fought against whom? Philistines. But you see, none of them delivered permanently. The Spirit of the Lord came upon three prophets that we know about. And now we know that the prophets heard the word of God, but the Spirit of the Lord came upon three of the prophets. Jehaziel. Have you seen the book of Jehaziel? <laughs> Who was Jehaziel? Well, he was the prophet that told Je Jehoshaphat that he, in fact, would obtain victory over the Ammonites and the Moabites. And he did this because the Spirit of the Lord came upon him. And Ezekiel, all the time, the Spirit of the Lord's coming upon him. And the Spirit of the Lord's moving him from place to place. And then finally, Micah. And the Spirit of the Lord came upon Micah to pronounce judgment upon, guess what? <laughs> Judah. So we got three prophets, but folks, they didn't give the final answer. Two other instances, and we know who they were. The Spirit of the Lord came upon Saul, and did it stay? No, it departed. The Spirit of the Lord came upon David, did it leave? No, but David died. So where is the Spirit of the Lord now? Upon whom does he descend? He descends upon his anointed, the one that comes out of the shoot. He is the one that's going to deliver. And Isaiah, once again, identifies this and personifies it specifically as the suffering servant in chapter 42. Behold my spirit upon whom, my servant upon whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him and he will bring forth justice for the nations. This is a messianic prophecy, of course. He is going to come and free the people, as we saw in Isaiah 61. And he will possess all the qualities necessary for a righteous rule. What are they? There are six of them here, paired together. Wisdom and understanding, counsel and fortitude or strength, knowledge and the fear of the Lord. The Septuagint, the Greek version, adds a seventh characteristic here, piety. And because of that, medieval theologians like Augustine, and then later Gregory the Great, and then Aquinas, talk about the seven gifts of the Spirit. When you hear about that, it comes from this passage. His, right, his reign will be righteous in verses 3 through 5. And he will delight in the fear of the Lord, and he will not judge by what he, his eyes see, he, nor will he make a decision by what his ears hear. But with righteousness he will judge the poor and decide with fairness for the afflicted of the earth. And he will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips he will slay the wicked. Also righteousness will be the belt around his loins and faithfulness the belt about his waist. This describes the righteous reign of the king and the prince of peace. It's characterized by those two things, righteousness and justice. Based on what? Based on the inherent character of the ruler, not the people, the ruler. And that's important for us to remember. The character of God's kingdom today is established by his character, not ours. He is going to be righteous. He will do what is fair and right. He has spiritual, spiritual intuition. He doesn't judge based on what he hears and sees. What does that sound like? It sounds like when Samuel goes to anoint the new king and God says, don't look on the outside, look at the heart. That's what God's always doing. Just as the Lord looked at David's heart, that's what he, what, he, what he does with us. He will be equitable. He will be fair to all. He will vindicate the poor and he will punish the wicked. Somebody's trying to call me. I turn them off. Faithful. He will always consistently administer justice. And the effect of this, I said a moment ago, chapter 32 then describes this kingdom. And the effect of this righteousness will be peace. And the result of righteousness, quietness and trust forever. Then my people will live in a peaceful habitation and secure dwellings and undisturbed resting places. It brings peace and that's the way this passage closes. In verses 6 through 9 and then through 12. And the wolf will dwell with the lamb, and the, the leopard will lie down with the young goat. And the calf and the young lion and the fatling together, and the little boy will lead them. Also the cow will graze, and the, and the bear will graze. Their young will lie down together, and the lion will eat straw like the ox. This one sends chills down my back. The nursing child will play by the hole of the cobra, <laughs> and the weaned child will put his hand 
on the viper's den. They will not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. This reminds us, folks, that all of creation yearns for redemption. This Prince of Peace is going to usher in universal peace, for which we yearn but will never arrive until he comes again. He reverses the effects of sin. He removes the curse upon all the earth, and he restores the earth to its primeval goodness. You see, the peace that they had in the garden is restored. Ezekiel describes this in chapters 34 and 36. And he says it this way. He says, my servant David will be their king, and he will shepherd them, and he will feed them. There will no longer be any harmful beasts. They will all live in safety, and I will shower them with abundant blessings. And they will live according to my everlasting covenant of peace. And I will make my dwelling with them, and I will be their God, and they will be my people. And all the nations, not Judah alone, not just Israel alone, but all the nations will know that I am Lord. And it brings us then to the conclusion in verses 10 through 12. God's universal dominion. Then in that day the nations will resort to the root of Jesse. And there's the root. Hmm. I thought he was the shoot. I thought he was the branch. Who will stand as a signal for the peoples, a standard, like a battle standard. And his resting place will be glorious. Then it will happen on that day that the Lord will again recover the second time with his hand the remnant of his people and will remain from, and they will remain from Assyria, Egypt, Pathros, Cush, Elam, Shinar, Hamath, and from the islands of the sea. And he will lift up a standard, like a battle standard, for the nations and assemble the banished ones of Israel and will gather the dispersed of Judah from the four corners of the earth. What's happening here in verse 10? He is raising a battle standard and it is the root. How can he be both the shoot and the root? How can he be both the branch and the root? Well, he's the shoot because he's the son of man. He's the branch that comes out of, of David's tree. He is the Christ child, but he's also the root. He's the son of God. He is the one that planted the tree. He is the one that is at the base. He is the creator and the one that gave life to Jesse so that he could give birth, his wife could give birth to David. The root will become the battle standard and the rallying banner for all of God's people universally gathering under the Davidic king. And Isaiah mentions this eight more times. Isaiah is the evangelist of the Old Testament. And the restor restoration of the remnant will then be the core of this. The faithful remnant, the believing remnant that have remained, will be the core of this kingdom. The remnant will return. Shear Jeshub. And the remnant will come from all directions, from north to south, Assyria through Cush, and from the southeast to the northwest, from Elam to Hamath, and to the west, from all over this globe, there will be a reunification of God's people. And verse 13, though it's not included in the passage that we read, reminds us it's not going to be just Judah, but Israel also too will be restored and they will be at peace. So we have the Prince of Peace, inherits the Davidic kingdom, who becomes the king of righteousness that is, will establish his kingdom someday. So what do we take away from this? How do we connect the, the thread and the cord? Unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. Of course, the Emmanuel passage is reflected then in chapter 9 as well. Where do you hear that again in the New Testament? Matthew, the first chapter. The angel speaks to Joseph. Now all this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet Isaiah. Behold, the virgin shall be with a child, and she shall bear a son, and they shall call his name what? Emmanuel. The people who walk in darkness have seen a great light. Land of Zebulun, wave of the sea, Galilee of the Gentiles. That was exactly the passage that Matthew quoted to tell about the beginning of Jesus' ministry. Simeon in the temple as he holds the baby Jesus quotes Isaiah 9 and Isaiah 42 when he says, For mine eyes have seen your salvation, and you have prepared for the presence of the people a light of revelation to whom? the Gentiles, and the glory of your people Israel. And Jesus himself said what? I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will no longer walk in darkness, but will have the light of what? Of life. Thirdly, Jesus inherited the Davidic covenant promise. For the angel Gabriel announces to Mary, and he says this explicitly, 
He is the fulfillment of the eternal covenant. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will have no end. Fourthly, Jesus is, in fact, God's anointed Messiah. We know this. For what does he quote? In Luke's gospel, when he begins his ministry in Nazareth, he goes to the synagogue, and my text says the book. I think it was the scroll. He unrolls the scroll to which passage? Isaiah 61. And he says what? The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. And he has anointed me to do all of those things that Isaiah prophesied. And then he put away the scroll, he put away the book, he gave it to the attendant, and then he sat down and he looked at him and he said, Today, today, this scripture has been fulfilled. Next to last, Jesus is the righteous king. There's no question about that. He fulfills Zechariah's prophecy when Zechariah said, your king is going to, become, is going to come in riding humbly on the back of a donkey's foal. Behold, your king is coming. He is just and endowed with salvation, humble and mounted on a donkey, even on a colt of a donkey. When Pilate asked him, are you king of the Jews? He didn't say no. He said, you said so. And then he said what? Did he say he didn't have a kingdom? And he said, no, what? My kingdom is not of this world. And he is enthroned today. Peter tells us he is at the right hand of God, having gone into heaven after the angels, authorities, and powers have been subjected to him. And we know from Revelation, we have the promise that the king's coming back. Revelation 19. And on his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written. What is it? King of kings and Lord of lords. Last of all, we know that he's going to gather everyone under his banner just as it's prophesied in Isaiah, the 11th chapter. He says it in a different way. The sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will be falling from the heaven and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. And then they will see the Son of Man coming on clouds with great power and glory. And then he will send forth his angels and they will gather together his elect from the four winds, from the farthest end of the earth to the farthest end of the heavens. He will gather his kingdom, and it will be one of righteousness and justice, ruled by the prince of peace. So we see the scarlet thread runs from David through Isaiah's prophecy, of course, to Matthew and Luke's fulfillment.